again to Romans chapter number 5, Romans chapter 5, and primarily we'll be looking at the first five verses tonight of Romans chapter 5, and we want to think about the subject tonight of the peace with God, its nature, author, and means. Peace with God, its nature, its author, and its means. Now, of course, anytime we jump into a portion of Scripture and it's kind of a message that stands out by itself, it's not a book we've been working through on a chapter-by-chapter, uh, verse-by-verse basis, we always want to give just a little bit of a reminder of where we would be if we were in Romans chapter number 5. And of course, a, an in-depth study of the book of Romans up through the first previous four chapters uh, would see that Paul was dealing primarily uh, with the proving of the reality that justification before God um, is not by the works of man, but it is by faith in which a man is justified. So when we get to Romans 5 and the introductory verses of this chapter, Paul begins to deal with not so much how is a person justified, but the blessings of that justification. Uh, now, just as quickly as I say that, we see that when you get down to verse 6 through the end of the chapter, Paul almost jumps right back into how this came about, how this justification um, has, a, has arisen in our hearts. But in these first five verses, Paul deals with this subject of having peace with God. And of course, we understand that the world today is in a, in a situation where it is looking for, it is longing for something that resembles peace. And of course, for the unbeliever, peace is never going to be found. For a person who does not know Christ, they're not going to find peace in any object. They're not going to find peace in any, uh, any job, any vocation. Uh, they're always looking for peace. Uh, now, if we were to, to do a quick review of the Old Testament sacrifices, we would be reminded um, how the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, uh, they were, blood was being offered. Uh, the Old Testament saints were offering prayers. People were trying all sorts of ways. They would read the law of Moses. The law was being expounded. The law was being taught. But none of those things could permanently remove the sin of the people. And therein lies the problem. You cannot have peace with God unless that problem of sin is removed. So peace with God is dependent upon the reality of sin being removed. Now, when we look at the New Testament, of course, we don't see blood of bulls and goats being offered as a means of procuring peace. We see that peace is accomplished through the free gift of God's grace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But this peace of God, we also need to keep in mind, is an actual everlasting peace. It's not a temporary peace. It's not a peace that lasts until circumstances change. It's an everlasting, eternal peace. It is the very peace that mankind is looking for, but they can't find it. They'll try everything. They'll try to even remove things in their own life. They'll try to say, look, I'm going to try to find peace in my life, and I'm going to take some things away. I'm going to take some things that are just chaotic in my life, and I'm going to remove those things, and maybe I'll get some peace. People sometimes try to remove a person from their life, thinking, if I remove this person, then I'll have peace. The problem is they'll only find temporary peace. But when sin is dealt with, that's where real peace comes from. Now, we understand and we believe that the gospel is to be proclaimed to all man. Now, we do not believe that we are only to proclaim the gospel to certain people, uh, certain classes. We are to proclaim the gospel to all, understanding that God himself is the saver of the soul. God saves the souls of men. But we proclaim the gospel to all. Which means when we preach the gospel, we are preaching the gospel of peace. We are preaching that which brings peace into the soul of a sinful man. Now, when we think about the peace with God, 
Uh, and tonight, by the indication of the title, uh, what is the nature of this piece? In other words, what, what does it actually look like? Why is this piece necessary? What brings us to the place where we need this piece? Secondly, who's the author of it? And then thirdly, what are the means in which this piece is acquired or how is it brought on sinful people? So in verse 1, we actually see that the nature of peace with God and the results it will produce. All right, the nature of peace with God and the results it will produce. Notice what it says in verse 1. Therefore, Paul using that very famous term he uses in so many of his letters, therefore, he's connecting those previous four chapters, being justified by faith. So he has a very clear audience here. Therefore, those who are justified by faith, he is not making a blanket statement that anybody in the world can now have these blessings. He's talking about those that are justified by faith. It's very clear that he uses by faith as a striking contrast of by works. Okay, he's, he's very clearly saying justification by faith, therefore those who have this, we have peace with God. That is a declaration of that which is now in possession. It's not something that I will have. It's not something that might come. I actually have peace with God. Now, what is the catalyst of that is the reality of being justified by faith. That tells us that there is no peace without being justified by faith. No justification, no peace. Now, in order to fully understand what Paul is talking about here, he says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, we need to understand and understand the promises that a person who's justified by faith will have peace. But we have to observe, and we cannot avoid this, we have to acknowledge that man by nature is at enmity with God. So mankind in his natural state is an enemy of God. He is at enmity. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 tells us that. We're told for all have sinned. That means all mankind and come short of the glory of God or come short of the requirement that God has in order to not be declared the enemy. Now again, we observe this, that man by nature is an enemy with God. As a result, Romans 1.18 teaches us that not only is, is man by nature at enmity with God, but man by nature is also under the wrath of God. Paul wrote in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so we have two characteristics here of people that we already know cannot possibly have peace. They are those people who are currently at enmity with God and are under the wrath of God. So for a man to be under the wrath of God and to be the enemy of God right now, certainly he is not going to have any peace whatsoever. Paul, again, is making these observations. Not only is man by nature at enmity with God, and he is under the wrath of God, man just by his, his own self, his own nature, he has a hatred towards God. Now again, this is where sometimes we have a separation between people who say, well, I am choosing God for myself, or I am, even though I'm an enemy of God and I'm under the wrath of God, I've decided to weigh everything in the balance and I've said now that I don't really hate God. But Paul dealt with that in Romans 8 as well when he talked about the flesh. And in Romans 8, chapter number five, or chapter 8, verse 5, he says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. This is not describing a carnal Christian. This is not describing a Christian who is backslidden. This is talking about a person who is still in the flesh, a person who is still the enemy of God. Now again, carnally minded is what? Verse 6, death. Verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against 
God. Now, we just read that it's only when we're in unbelief that we're at enmity with God. God would not put us back into an act in enmity with him if we've been justified by faith. He's not going to return us back to the state we once were. That's the proof verse right there that says this is not a carnal Christian. This is the person who is still an enemy of God, who is still under the wrath of God. And man by nature does not like the law of God. Look at again verse 7 of Romans 8. For it is not subject to the law of God. And then here's the kicker. Neither indeed can be. So now you have Paul saying, wait a minute. To be carnally minded is death. Spiritually minded is what? Life and peace. But the carnal mind, the unsaved mind is enmity against God for it's not subject to the law of God nor can it be the carnal mind cannot be subject to the law of God that means something has to take place in man to make him subject to the law of God so we see the peace of God is reserved for those who are actually justified by faith now again, back to our text in Romans 5, and the, the tendency tonight is going to be for all of us is to try to keep this on the level where I'm trying to stay and not go too far off the path, right? Considering really this peace with God subject, all right? So as a result, man is by nature at enmity with God. All, are, all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. All are under the wrath of God. There's an enmity on the part of man towards God because of the carnal mind. So as a result, man is charged and is guilty with condemnation. He is, he is condemned and wrath is pronounced upon him because of the state in which he's in. Now one thing that is certain with him, he does not have peace. So this peace with God is reserved for those who have been justified by faith. Back to Romans 5.1, being justified by faith means we are counted righteous before God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means we have believed on him as he has been revealed in the scriptures. Okay, so it's not believing on Jesus in the way that we want to believe in Jesus. It's believing on Jesus as he has been revealed in the scriptures. Therefore, Paul says, being justified, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, make any bones about this. He says, if you're justified, you have peace. Not, again, not that it's coming, not that you've got to keep working for it, but that you have peace with God. Well, what does that mean? That means you're no longer under the wrath of God and you're no longer under any condemnation. That's why Romans 8 says there's therefore now no more condemnation. I cannot be condemned any longer, nor can I be returned back to my state of enmity with God. I have peace. Just as this peace is real, this righteousness is real. We are actually accounted as righteous. Not with a disclaimer on it. We're actually counted righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. And that is where we're talking about this peace. Well, this peace arises from the fact, again, the fact that in Christ... We are righteous. Now notice how I said that. In Christ, we are righteous. Not in yourself, not in our works, but in Christ, we are declared righteous. In order to be declared righteous, that means a couple things have to be certain. Your sins are forgiven. Not just covered, forgiven. That's an important, that's an important thing to consider. We are considered holy, and unblameable. When Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter number 1, and he makes mention of this, he was not making mention of this as something that he hoped was going to be the case or something that would maybe come about if 
everything lined up properly. But in Ephesians chapter number 1, if you want to turn there, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is the result of what is taking place when we have peace with God. This is an actual peace. There is an actual righteousness, and we are declared to be holy and unblameable. Paul also, when he was writing to the church at Colossae in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 20, it says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross... By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime or at one point alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he done what? Reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So just as this peace is actual peace, righteousness, holiness, and being unblameable are actual, it's an actual standing because it's in Christ. Outside of Christ, there's no two ways about it. Scripture says that man outside of Christ is an enemy of God and is at war with God. And I know we don't like to think about these thoughts, but he is at war with them. Now, I know the popular way to teach things is to say, God just loves everybody, no matter who they are, what they've done. He just loves them all, and there's no hatred, there's no wrath, there's no judgment, there's no condemnation. The problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually declares that he hates unrighteousness. He hates the work and the, the wickedness of darkness. Uh, Jesus probably is uh, the, the greatest preacher of this, this particular concept in the most recognizable passage and chapter in the Bible, which is John 3. Now, it's not so much in John 3.16 we see it, but we see a declaration that's made in John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son hath means he already possesses it, has everlasting life. So it's very clear. The believer has possession of everlasting life right now. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now again, I'm always struck by the words, and I'm struck by the way it's worded. The wrath of God abides on him, present tense. Does everybody see that? That's present tense. We often say, wrath is on you later or coming. Wrath is coming. To be in an unconverted state is to be without peace, but also to have God's wrath abiding upon you at this very moment. Okay, that's... That's the difficult truth and reality that's being said there by Jesus himself. So outside of Christ, man is under the wrath of God. When we are in Christ, we are reconciled and enjoy peace, just like the verses that we read there previously. Uh, there is a passage in Isaiah 32 uh, that I was reading this afternoon that, again, just a great reminder of this peace and reconciliation uh, Isaiah 32, 17 says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect, listen to this, of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. If I was to ask somebody to define what peace is, often the common words that would come up would be the word quiet, calm, without disruptions, but peace with God is something much deeper than that. This is spiritual quietness. This is spiritual assurance. This is being able to lay your head down at night 
and know that you are in Christ and that you have actual everlasting peace. Now, that doesn't mean that the world might be falling in around you. The last month or so, all of our studies have been revolving around afflictions and trials, and that's not by accident, folks. This is the reality of the Christian life. It's the reality that we are facing lots of things in our life. And every one of you tonight, you've got, you've got something chaotic going on in your life. Every one of you do. We all have something that's just chaos. And we say, how come I can't get any peace from this? How come I can't get away from that? You realize if you're in Christ, you already have the greatest peace you could possibly ever experience. You are no longer under the wrath of God and you are no longer the enemy of God and you're no longer under the condemnation of God. You are loved in the biblical sense, not in the love that sadly so many are just taking as the truth and saying God just loves everybody no matter what you do. That's not what it says. But if I have peace with God, I have a very real peace. Now, there's always a theological debate and again, I'm not, my intent tonight is not that at all. When we talk about peace with God, you know, was Paul talking about the peace of God or the peace with God? The peace that's intended here is all of the above. Because when you have peace with God, these things are going to be also reality. When you have peace with God, there is forgiveness. There is acceptance. There is a reconciliation with God himself. My sins have been forgiven. I am accepted in the beloved. I have been reconciled to God. But when you have peace with God, you also have peace of conscience. A lot of problems that people have with no peace in their life, as they will say this, is my conscience is absolutely killing me. My conscience is at war with me. But do you realize that when you know that you have peace with God because you've been justified by faith, your conscience is even at peace? Where does that arise from? It arises from knowing that the sin of your past has been pardoned and forgiven. There's nothing that will soothe your conscience more than knowing that your sin in the past has actually been forgiven. Your sin of the present has been forgiven. Your sin of tomorrow has been forgiven. And do you realize that you've not just been saved from the sins that you have committed, you're also saved and have power over sin. We don't have to live in the darkness. We don't have to live as if we don't have any power over sin. That's part of the peace we get with the conscience. But I also believe that peace with God leads to a peaceful state of mind. Our will, our affections, they're subdued. When you're converted, there is a change, I believe, in your temperament. You're not that same man, that same woman that you used to be. You know, we have a lot of people that just say, well, you know, I'm glad I got the prayer over with. I'm glad I prayed the prayer and I'm glad I'm on my way to heaven and now I can go back to being that angry, temperamental person that just has no control, is not meek. Listen, the peace of God and having peace with God will actually give you a peaceful, tranquil mind where you, you are settled in the truth. Not just because you feel that way, but because that's what God's Word says. We have peace with men. It's, it's an amazing thing that we can say we're justified. We can say that we have peace of conscience, we have a peaceful, tranquil state of mind, but we seem to be in conflict and battle with everybody. We are to be at peace with all men. We shouldn't be starters of discord and starters of strife. Now again, I'm not talking about not standing on the truth, and I'm not talking about compromising what the Bible says. But we shouldn't be the one that's stirring up trouble. We shouldn't be the ones that are saying, hey, there comes that Christian. Every time they show up, an argument breaks out. You see, it should even lead to peace with all men. We can speak the truth in love. 
Now think about this. If Paul intends that peace with God includes all of these things, what an amazing, excellent peace that is. And if you have that kind of peace, then you are truly a blessed individual. I mean, if you put your head down at night and you can rest in the peace that you have with God, you are a blessed individual. I'm not so sure we realize just how troubled the unbelieving world is. I think we might have a sense of it, but I don't think we really know how terrible it is to have no peace. To have no assurance of a peace with God. There are hurting people, hurting unbelieving people all around us. And they are looking, again, I know that the Bible shows us that there's none that seeks after God, but they are seeking for something. They're seeking for peace. And yet, peace only comes through justification. So that's the first heading. Number two, and this we've already, these are, these are kind of answering themselves. Number two, the author of peace is with God and the way in which he gives it. How does he give this peace? Well, we've learned already, it's not ourselves, it's not our works that produce peace. We can't reconcile ourselves to God. Because all of our works are still imperfect. All of our works, all of our motives still have the possibility of being done wrongly. Because they're still stained with that sin that's still in us. Now we have a new nature, but we still have the old man and we still are prone to sin. So even if we could say, God, I'm giving you my very best work, my very best effort would still be stained with sin. However, my standing is with and through Christ. So we can't gain God's favor by our works. Our best of works would only be declared as deserving of wrath. That's why Isaiah says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Because even if you brought your very, very best and you said I'm offering this by myself apart from Christ, God would say... That's under my wrath. That's how foolish it would be to rely on your works in any way, shape, or form as your means of reconciliation or peace with God. Because God would declare your best works as a deserving of condemnation. So, what we see here, it's the gift of God. There is absolutely nothing we can do to satisfy the demands of a holy God. But there's also nothing we can do when our conscience or our spirit becomes awakened by the convicting power of the spirit. You know, oftentimes, and you can read some of the accounts of some of the during the Great Awakening, and you can read people were struggling with the reality of being awakened to the reality of their sin, being awakened to the reality that they didn't know what to do with it, and they were terrified by that prospect. They were terrified to consider, wait a minute, I realize something is wrong here, but I don't know what to do with it. The point is, is we cannot pacify or satisfy a holy God. That's why we needed a gift. That gift is the gift of God. The author is God himself. He alone is the author of it. One man described it this way, peace with God is God's mercy passing by our past sins and pardons them and removes the wrath. It's an amazing thought. The Holy Spirit removes our enmity. He removes our hatred towards God. And He gives us power over that sin. But He also reminds us we've been pardoned. One of the other many, many conversations I have with people is people struggling with assurance. Assurance and lack thereof usually comes down to one thing and one thing only. It's a failure to believe the promises of God that have already been declared. It's believing what God says already. God says this is, this is the case. So it's by Christ we have access 
We have we are placed into a state of sonship, accepted. Peace and grace are distinguished from one another. Paul often, when he would open his letters, he would write, grace and peace be unto you. That was intentional. It denotes or signifies a blessing. Back in our text, notice Paul says in Romans 5.2, he says, by whom, that's Christ, we have access by faith into this grace. Okay, we have this undeserved, unexpected blessing. Access. Access into this grace. How? By faith. That is a state of God's favor. And that means to be in God's favor means it includes every blessing that comes by being in that state. So Paul says, and what's our response to that? Notice this. He says it is access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is a sure thing. This is a sure expectation. This is not dependent upon any other work that man does. It's a sure expectation. Paul says, what do we do as a result of that? We, re we rejoice in what? In hope. Show me a person without peace and I'll show you a person without hope. Cross the board. A person who cannot find peace is also hopeless. Same same side of the other, other side of the same coin. Show me a person who has no hope. I'll show you a person who has no peace. Paul says we have peace with God being justified by faith. We have this access into this grace by faith through Jesus Christ. And as a result, we rejoice in that hope of the glory of God. What that is, is that's the hope of our eternal salvation. And again, folks, this is more than just the hope of walking on the streets of gold. This is the hope of one day being like Christ. This is the hope of one day being like He is without sin. See, there's nothing that believers right now are longing for more than this. I don't want sin anymore. You say, oh, I, I always thought it was, I just want to see Jesus. Oh, that's there. But you understand, you can't see Him face to face unless sin is dealt with. We shall be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. Imagine seeing our Savior for the first time when we get to glory without sin polluting your view. See, right now we don't understand that everything you do, say, and think still is stained with sin. But yet Paul says, interestingly enough, but you have peace with God now. When we understand the hope that Paul writes about here, nothing will produce a greater joy than that. The Bible tells us that there can be no true joy without this hope. In other words, you cannot be joyful in this world if you do not have the hope that is in Christ. There is so much false joyousness that goes on in our world, we don't even realize how many times people are faking their joy. One thing that shouldn't be the case, a believer should never have to fake joy. They should never have to say, listen, I'm going to make myself joyful today. I'm just going to put on a good face. You should be joyful and because you rejoice in the hope that is found through Jesus Christ. For many people, joy eludes them. But the psalmist writes in Psalm 17, 15, he said, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. David there in that psalm was anticipating waking up in glory and the joy that that would produce. It gave him joy in this life. I love this quote by Martin Luther. He said, although I am a sinner, yet I despair not. For Christ, who is my Redeemer and my righteousness, liveth. In Him, I have no sin, no fear, no sting of conscience, no fear of judgment. For in Him, there is no condemnation. I am indeed a sinner. 
I love how he says this. I am indeed a sinner as touching this present life. He's, he's dead on right. In this present life, I'm still a sinner. But I have a righteousness of God which is above this life who is Christ my Lord. In Him I rejoice. Now you read Martin Luther's life, you'll realize that Martin Luther didn't just wake up one day and have everything right. He struggled for a lot of years with a lot of things and he went back and forth. But that truth he did know and he had that truth down pretty well. This present life, I'm still a sinner. But I also realize I have something much more than what this life is. I have Christ. So we see the nature, we see the author. Verse 3 through 5, we see the means. How is this peace? It's purchased. It's not purchased by us. It's not purchased by the church. It's purchased by Christ. He purchased this peace, and the people who possess it are those that he has bought with his blood. We see Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. He says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now again, here's one, here's one of Paul's great theological words. This, this little two words is about as powerful as therefore. Now then. I love that. Now then. It's, it's, a, it's a great theological word. Now then, we are, present tense, ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That's the message. Christ has purchased us. He's reconciled us by his blood to the Father. We are now his ambassadors. Which means every one of us who knows this salvation should be out proclaiming that salvation. You can't proclaim the gospel without proclaiming reconciliation and peace with God. Man has to be told he's a sinner. You can't sugarcoat it and say God just wants everyone to be saved. No, it has to be the reality of what this peace means. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Paul very clearly, not only in 2 Corinthians, but Romans 5, makes mention of this. Verse 3 says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Okay, we'll get to that in just a moment. But Paul, as he's mentioned, these people that have this peace, we've seen very clearly that peace cannot be possessed by the wicked or the unbeliever. Isaiah 57, verses 19 through 21, the prophet Isaiah makes mention of this. Isaiah 57, verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now again, I'm not trying to be unkind, and I'm not trying to be provoking. But when I say that there's no peace to the wicked, there's no peace to the unbeliever, we're just stating biblically what God has said. God says it is impossible for an unbelieving person or a wicked person to have peace. So when we see people strike out, we see an unbelieving world strike out, in anger, strike in, um, in, in, in ways that are unthinkable. They're striking out because they're lacking that peace that you have. 
Sometimes we as Christians, I think we, we get in our Christian little bubble and we, 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 don't, we don't understand the mindset and the heart set of people that you're dealing with. And we almost are like we're appalled by the actions of the world. You're watching people who have no peace and no hope. And yet you have a peace. Now clearly, we've, saw, we've already witnessed tonight by the Scriptures that there's an enmity with God. They're under the condemnation, under the wrath of God. But there's also the truth in Scripture that the Bible clearly says that God hates workers of iniquity and He's angry with the wicked every day. A verse that bothers people greatly. And again, I'm not giving this to you to bother you. I'm giving you the reality of what it says, but it's a very neglected verse written in the Psalms. Psalms 5, verses 4 and 5. The psalmist David says these words. He's speaking to God. He's speaking about God. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. God's never going to find any pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. You ever heard, this, you ever heard the saying that God hates the sin but not the sinner? That's not what that verse says. Now again, that strikes people and that's a hard verse to take. He hates workers of iniquity. Well, who are the workers of iniquity? People. You say, I, I can't come to grips with that. That's the reality of what his word says. Now again, we don't say that with any kind of pride. We say that, I hope, with a deep burden in our heart and a deep, deep sorrow. Especially as people who've been forgiven, you ought to have the, have the deepest burden for people who are still in an unbelieving state. And say, wait a minute. Had it not been for the grace of God, this verse would have been about me. But God is angry with the wicked. Remember, we hear people say now, God's not angry. God's not angry at your sin. Well, Psalm 7, verse 11 again says otherwise. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Okay, these are verses that are there. So what is, the, what is the conclusion here? That the people who possess this peace with God are not unbelievers. Peace cannot be the portion of an unbelieving person. So what does that mean? That means that faith and repentance, which are both gifts of God, are necessary. We pray specifically every week when we gather that God would open the eyes of sinners, do we not? We pray every time we gather that God would open their ears, make them willing to believe. Why are we doing that? Because we 100% believe that repentance and faith is the gift of God. Do we ever withhold that from anybody who has ever sat in these seats? No. We've never once said, it's not for them, it's not for them, it's not for them. It's a call that goes out to all people to repent and believe. Us understand that at the same time, when we give that call, we're praying, oh dear God, open their eyes, open their ears, make them willing this day that they might believe in you. And then when we see it happen, what do we do? We give all glory to God and we rejoice in it and nobody takes any credit for it. That's the beauty of the true gospel. None of us can take credit for anybody's soul. We can just say, we, we preached the gospel and look what God did. Now Paul, we'll finish up with these couple thoughts here. Paul then takes all of this and he kind of ties this up in a nice, with a bow on it that really kind of helps us again understand. We know we've been justified by faith. And we know what the result of that is. We know the nature of our peace. We know the author of the peace. We know the means. And then Paul says in verse 3 of Romans 5, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. 
Not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we even rejoice in our tribulation, our trials, and our afflictions. Again, what we've been talking about the last month. We are to rejoice in those things. Paul, again, we're kind of following a map here tonight of words that Paul has said. Some of the verses and chapters have been different, but 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul makes this very statement about tribulations. He says, Therefore, <laughs> therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Paul's sake. Uh-uh. That's not what he says. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul is not saying that I love my tribulation. I love my reproaches. I love my afflictions. He's not saying rejoice in the suffering aspect of it because true suffering is very difficult. But what he is saying is you should rejoice in the effect that that trial, that struggle, that affliction produces in you. That means if God puts you through an affliction and lets an affliction come at your doorstep, you should rejoice in the effect of it. See, some people get this so wrong and they, they say, I, I, I'm loving my reproach. I'm loving my affliction. I'm loving my suffering as if we're, we're, we're acting like some kind of a martyr. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, no, what I want you to do is I want you to rejoice in the effect of this. What this is doing in you. Well, what is it doing according to the scripture? Tribulation works patience. The one thing nobody here needs, right? No, it's the one thing we all need. I have never met a human being who doesn't need spiritual patience. Again, this is not just the day-to-day -day patience. This is the patience to take in the reality of life and the reality of spiritual truths and to have patience. It also includes patiently waiting for when Christ comes again. This patience, he said, it is worked by tribulation. Patience is not just flying, not flying off the handle and having, being restrained. What patience is really biblically defined as is being submitted to the will of God. That's what patience is. That's why one of our greatest prayers we should ever pray is, God, I want my will to be your will. That's patience. When you pray, God, give me patience, you're not asking God to keep you from jumping across the table at somebody. What you're actually praying for is you're praying that God would make his will, your will. Be content and wait upon the Lord, like the psalmist says in Psalm 27. Patience is the opposite of coveting. It's the opposite of complaining. It involves our submission to God and our attitude towards God, what we think about His providence, what we think about His sovereignty, but it also what it has to do with our attitude towards others. But then he says patience works experience. What's experience? It's our character and our faith growing and being matured. The reality is, biblically speaking, trials don't produce faith. They reveal faith that's there. In other words, trials are not going to produce faith. Faith's a gift of God. What the trial is actually going to do is reveal, is there any real faith there? Trials will, one man put it this way, trials may detect a hypocrite. Trials may harden a man's heart. Trials may cause a man to drop his profession. But true biblical saving faith is always stronger as a result of a trial. And then he says, experience and proof worketh hope. As the genuineness of our faith is shown and confirmed by the trial, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Came across this quote from Spurgeon today. He said, you will never know God's strength until he has supported you in deep waters. I said, how true is that? Hope maketh not ashamed, verse 5. 
Those who possess this good hope in Christ will never be ashamed of the relationship that they have with Christ. Nor will you ever have cause to be ashamed of him because he is perfect. Maybe a terrible illustration, but have you ever gone to bat for someone, so to speak, where you've said, I'll stand by their character, I'll stand by their person, I, I, I will vouch for them only to find that they did not turn out to be the person you thought they were and suddenly you vouch for their character? You're never going to be ashamed of Christ because he's never going to give us a reason to be ashamed of him. Nor should we ever be ashamed of him. And then let's just finish with this thought. He says, hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Ghost. How did the Holy Ghost get there? Which is given unto us. It was like a gift we've received. It's not our love for God that gives us peace. It's not our love for God that gives us a strong hope and comfort. Although the fruits of the Spirit will remind us of that. But it's the Holy Spirit revealing to us God's love for us. How does, when someone says, how do you know God loves? They're asking me, how do, they, how do you know God loves you? Because the Holy Spirit testifies of that truth. Well, prove it. He's proven it to me. It's the Spirit that reveals God's love. It's not God's love without any conditions. It's God's love for us in Christ. And we rejoice in the knowledge of knowing that. What's the effect of knowing that Christ loves you? Peace. Because I have access to the very God who saved me. And we rejoice in the hope of that which is to come. I hope tonight you can say that you have peace with God. And I hope that that's, I hope that's the testimony of our heart tonight. Well, let's pray together. And then we're, I'm going to give you just a quick couple of words uh, of the benediction. And then we'll be on our way. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll, we'll be dismissed here in just a moment. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage. And we thank you, Lord, for the promises that are given and Lord, I pray that these would find a resting place deep in our soul. Lord, it is wonderful to know that your word doesn't just declare things that will be, but declares the things that are. May we rest in those promises tonight, Lord. May we not go seeking our own way of finding peace, but may we realize that if we have truly been justified by faith through Jesus Christ, we have this peace already. May we live in the assurance of what your word teaches us. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let me just read these couple verses to you and then we'll be on our way. John 14, Jesus says in verse 25, he says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. But let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Amen. May the grace of the Lord be with us all. There will be no piano, so that's hard for us to get used to. <laughs>